Good morning, church. Um, I wonder if you'll join me in prayer, please. Um, Father, we just thank you. Um, We thank you for the fact that we can come and that we can worship you. We thank you for the worship that is going on all over the world today as people praise your name. We thank you for the worship that is happening out in creation right now as as the mountains and the hills and the ocean all speak your praise around us, Lord, and, and we get to join into that. And I thank you for that, Lord, that you have called us into your presence and you accept us into your presence and you accept our worship. And Lord, I just pray um, over this time of the word, will you open your word up to us? Will you open our hearts to your word? Um, Lord, will your Holy Spirit please rest on this congregation of people and, and allow the words that I speak um, to be influenced by your spirit and allow our hearts to be influenced by your spirit. Let the things that we need to hear be stuck deep into our hearts. Let the things that we don't need to hear slide off and go away. Uh, Father, just uh, just be holy and be present in this time, we pray in your name. Amen. I kind of had to pinch myself, actually, at first to make sure that I wasn't dreaming when I started looking at this book. Um, and part of it was just the location. Um, it was the fact that I was indeed um, at the bookstore in Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, which is a comparatively conservative um, church university. And, and, and yes, I was there. And yes, the book title was still correct. And, and it was even being endorsed by a preacher in the Church of Christ that I hold in very, very high regard. And so I picked it up, and I took a look at it. The book was titled, Loves God, Likes Girls, by Sally Geary. And I bought the book based on location and title alone. Because I said, if this can be placed in a prominent position in a conservative Christian university then maybe we're ready to have an interesting conversation about this. Maybe we're ready to have a serious conversation about this rather than throw one-liners and walk away. It was very exciting. And I was going to read it slowly, but I couldn't. I actually tore through the book in about a day and a half. Because it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's, it's not a thesis. It's not a stance. It's not a statement. It's a memoir. It's the story of a person's life who is standing on the on the, the knife edge of how do I live as somebody that's dealing with same-sex attraction and who is actually trying to be holy. And I was captivated by the story of a person whose faith journey and college experience was a lot like mine. Um, she talked about she talked about getting baptized and coming down at the like the just as I am you know like altar call. I was like I did that I remember that okay I remember doing that you know and and you know I remember the awkwardness of being in those like blue robes you know that only come to about here and you know you got like these little like knobby you know like teenage you know white knees you know and you're kind of like okay you know and like I feel awkward enough now. And, now I'm making public professions of faith in front of everybody dressed in like a shorty bathrobe, you know. It's, I remember that. 
I remember go I remember going to I remember going to Abilene and, and making these runs to Larry's Better Burgers that she talks about. And by the way, if you ever do go to Abilene and uh, go to Larry's Better Burgers, you need to realize that the better in Larry's Better Burgers is a patented lie. Lies. They are not better. You do not go to Larry's Better Burgers because the burgers are better. You go because they are five for five dollars. Okay. And because they have hand-dipped ice cream, which they can then put out the flames of what that gut bomb is doing to you in your stomach. Okay, but I mean, there were so many of those. There were so many of those things in her memoir that I identified with so deeply, and yet she went through it harboring secrets, and she even calls them lies that were planted in her about how she felt about herself about how she felt about others, how others felt about her, and about how God felt about her. And it was, as described by so many people, a very haunting, heart-wrenching, and beautiful memoir. Where I really, where I really, like, just attached on it, though, and, and what I think it has to do with what we're talking about today in our reading, was that she had an experience of engagement with Psalm 142. She was. She describes a point at which she was. She was in her room. She's. She's past college. She is, you know, working in law school. She is trying to balance this inclination with trying to be holy, and has kept it basically all internal, and nobody knows about it, and is has basically blown up a really good friendship with somebody because she has fabricated a relationship with this girl that can never be reciprocated by her but has built it up in her mind and is dealing with what she calls a court of liars that were in her head saying, you know, this is, this is your life. This is as good as it gets for you. You know, you might as well just give up. You might as well just go the way of culture. You might as well just toss this whole God thing out. You know, he doesn't really care for you anyway. And in desperation, she cracks open the Bible and comes to Psalm 142. And this is what she reads. I pour out my soul before him. I tell him all of my troubles, for I am overwhelmed. You alone know the way out. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me, but nobody comes. Nobody gives me a passing thought. No one will save me. No one cares what happens to me. Then I cry out to you, and I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in my life. So hear my cry, for I am so low. Rescue me from my accusers, for they are too strong for me, and they torment me. Bring me out of my prison so that I may thank you. And then let they who are godly crowd around me, for you are good to me. And in that moment, her narrative changes because God does the unexpected. He comes and he stands in between her and the accusers that are in her head. And in this, I see the picture of the woman in our reading. Somebody in need of God to intercede. Somebody who needs God to come in between them and their guilt. Somebody who needs God to come in between them and those who are accusing them and those who are condemning them.
I'll be real. I mean, this this sermon is not about same-sex attraction. But I will say same-sex attraction is an area where we need to learn something from the Word of God here today. Like a lot of other areas. This is one of our most vivid pictures of Jesus. This is one of our most quoted pieces of Scripture. Sadly, often it gets quoted, especially the... Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. That quip usually gets thrown out by people that are patently guilty, but trying to use it to avoid accountability or responsibility, unfortunately. I've heard way too many politicians throw out the first stone thing, and I'm like, you really, really need to actually read your Bible, okay? That's not what this is about. It's not about excusing sin. Although that's what we've, that's what we've, we've patented it as sometimes. This is an amazing passage about the character of God and especially about the character of God when it comes to judgment. Which is something that we need lots of instruction on because we are not very good at it. And yet, even though this is one of the most vivid pieces of Jesus, vivid pictures of Jesus, I'm sure that if you're looking at it in your Bible right now, at the end of John 7 and the beginning of John 8, you probably got it in brackets. You may even have it in parentheses that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain this passage in John. Some of you may have it stuck at the back of your Bible. Some of you, if you've got a Catholic Bible, you may even have it stuck somewhere in Luke. And it makes you go, what is this? Are we on to some conspiracy theory? Like, is... Bart Ehrman and all this misquoting Jesus stuff? Like, is it right? No, 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 okay. Let's let's just cut through all that for a second, okay? Here's a theory that we work with, okay? We don't work with a... We, I don't work with a theory of suspicion in the Bible. I work with a theory of suspicion of myself, okay? When I read the Bible. What we have here in working theory is a story that was handed down of Jesus that is so good that people say we cannot lose this story. We must make sure that people remember this picture of Jesus. And so the question is not how valid is it. The question is why did they put it where they put it? Why did they decide to put it here? That's the question to ask. Because frankly, where they put it seems to be an interruption. It seems like it's interrupting this big series of exchanges of controversy about Jesus himself. Jesus himself is actually on trial a little bit. He's not there. They're just having a trial without him there. That's never happened in church before. Um, But basically, there's this big feast that's going on, and everybody's like, where's Jesus? Like, is he going to show up to the feast? Because everybody knows he's already kind of challenging the Bible majors of the day, okay? And and he's kind of messing with their theology a little bit. And they're like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And they keep looking for him. It's a seven-day fast, and he doesn't show up. And then he's kind of like keeping this low profile. And then like on the last day, he stands up and he says, in the middle of this big ceremony that is dealing with purification and, and, and the washing and the cleansing, he stands up and he says, if anybody's really thirsty, come to me because I am the living water. As they're doing this thing about purification and, and atonement and, and it's the, the, the climax of this huge seven-day party, basically. And he says, oh, did this, did this fill your soul? If it really filled your soul, you should come to me because I will really fill your soul. And all of the Bible majors are like, we need to have a talk. And they come over here and they have their little huddle. 
And they send these temple guards out, and they're like, go arrest him. Like, he's really, really over the edge now. And the temple guards go out, and they come back empty-handed. And they're like, why aren't you arresting the guy? And they're like, we've never heard anybody talk the way this guy talks. Are you kidding? If we arrest him, we're going to start a riot. And they start berating the guards. And they're like, nobody who actually knows the law of God would follow this guy. Nobody who actually knows what God wants would follow this guy who's talking about God a lot. Only the, only the crowds, only these people, and, and, and it's the way that they talk about the people that cues us in. Only these crowds, these accursed crowds, these crowds that have the curse of God on them because they don't really understand the law. They're the ones that are following this guy. And Nicodemus, who we talked about a few weeks ago, kind of pipes up. And, kind of, I mean, hesitantly, okay, but still, I, I give the guy credit. Okay, kind of goes, um, I got a question. Does our, we're talking about these people that don't know the law, but do we know the law? Because I think our law says that we're not supposed to condemn people before they have a trial. And, and they have a chance to defend themselves. And right now, we've already decided that this guy's not a prophet, and we are already condemning him, and, we, and he hasn't. And basically, they're like, what, are you like one of these like Galilean backwater hicks too? Nicodemus is like, sorry. I was just saying, you know, just trying to make a point here. But it's really, really evident that they've already made up their minds. They've already passed casual judgment about Jesus. And immediately after, you have this situation wherein they have very much already kind of passed judgment on this woman. Sign sealed, it's over. Now, the evidence is obviously not in her favor at all, okay? But there's some things that I want us to realize, especially when we look at the other side of this. Because right after the exchange, right after this scene with the adulterous woman, Jesus makes another proclamation about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who brings true understanding. I am the only one who can actually judge rightly because my judge, my judgment is backed up by the Father and is backed up by the Spirit. I have the reliable witnesses to say, yes, this is true. And we understand that this passage then is primarily not about adultery, not even about forgiveness. It's about judgment. Both these light and water I am statements, we talked about it, that it was, it was a facet of the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus' claim to authority is that he now embodies the essence of the temple. He is the place where God's justice and mercy intersects and flows out to humanity. Instead of the temple housing the presence of God and the temple being where God is satisfied and where his mercy can flow to the people, now it's in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Which is probably why they're trying to arrest him. Okay, because they understand their Bible a little bit and they get what he's doing. They're just not willing to accept it. They've already passed judgment before they've actually allowed him to speak. One of the things that I think is the most insidious pieces of this passage, though, this exchange wherein you have the woman and you have her accusers is the is the fact that you have it in bold in bold type right here 
they were using the question. But let's be honest, they were using the whole situation as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus of the thing that they'd already decided about him. I mean, if it's a case of adultery, everybody's using everybody, right? She's using the guy, the guy's using her. But where is the guy anyway? You ever wondered about that? They go, in the law of Moses, it says, well, in the law of Moses, it says that both parties die, okay? In fact, there's actually, in the Talmud, the oral tradition has some really, really specific and interesting instructions for how the guy's supposed to die, okay? The woman, yes, you take her outside of town, you throw rocks at her until she's dead. It's pretty clear cut, okay? The guy, you actually, like, take a very, very, like, large towel and wrap it around his neck. And then you take a rope and you wrap it around that towel. And then you bury the guy up to his knees in cow dung. I'm not kidding. And then you tie another rope around his waist. And then you get a whole bunch of people and you start pulling in each direction until he's dead. And the whole reason that you keep the towel around there is so that there's no rope mark because the justice is from the Lord, not from us. I don't know why. I'm just saying there was a really specific way that the guy is supposed to get into this, and he's nowhere here. And so it's obvious, even from the fact that both parties are not there, that they are using this woman. And that's just detestable, man. And it's detestable for Jesus, too. He knows, right? And here's the trap, okay? If you you haven't figured the trap out now, the trap's really simple. If Jesus says, no, can't do that, then they get to say, you're no teacher of Israel because the law of Moses clearly says that the penalty for the commandment is death and you do not follow the law of Moses. Yay, we can arrest you. Okay? If Jesus says yes, then what? Well, then he's just like them. He loses all credibility as being a person, of a prophet of mercy and a man of compassion and a man of the people and all of those things, like all of his credibility goes away. Everything that he's been saying up to this point. Okay? Pretty, I mean, it's a simple yet very, very effective little trap. Because they're asking him they're asking him what they think is a yes or no question. She either has to die or she doesn't. And so Jesus, being God, finds the redemptive way to do things, which is always a lot different than the simple way to do things, which I love about God and I love about Jesus. He starts writing. He avoids the trap of the natural answers of the problem, and he also highlights the sin of the leaders and their abuse of the law. See, the thing is that we realize if you're, if, you're, if you're Jewish and you're reading this, you realize that the leaders are not actually embodying the Torah. They're using the Torah, the law of God, for only one purpose, to assess judgment. But, but Moses, especially when they invoke Moses, it's like that's, that's the worst thing that they could have done. Okay, because Moses says that the law of God does not merely exist for judgment. Moses says that the law of God exists in order to bring life, in order to reveal the will of God, in order to bestow his spirit, in order to liberate, in order to bring life and redemption. And they're not doing any of those things. 
See, this passage actually shows us Jesus embodying the law better than the Bible majors, which is great. Because I am a Bible major, so I always have to remember that. That Jesus knows the law a lot better than me. Jesus knows how to do this Christianity thing a whole lot better than I do. It doesn't matter how many books I read, or how many papers I write, or whatever. I always have to come back to Jesus and say, how do I live this life again? What does it mean to be your disciple again? And it shows that they've forgotten that. See, we actually watch Jesus become Torah, literally embodying the text of Psalm 142, being the living word, and he comes and inserts himself into the circle of accusers and makes the woman's circle of condemners a place of refuge. I love that. I love that. He comes in and makes a real judgment. And what is that judgment? First, it is that no one is in a position to determine a verdict save Jesus. You think about what we talked about last week with the rich young ruler and our identity and how we enter into the kingdom. If we ourselves can only claim inheritance because of God's mercy, there's no way we can impose another standard on somebody else other than that you enter in by the mercy of God. Very, very simple. And this is what the writing is all about. This is what the writing on the ground is all about, okay? We, there's all kind, I mean, this, this idea of what does Jesus write has fascinated people for so long, okay? Like, I read so much this week on what does the writing mean, okay? Everybody's like, what is the writing? What is he writing? We don't know. Okay, I'm going to start with we don't know. We have no idea. And frankly, if it was really theologically critical, John would have been like, and he stooped down and he wrote this. Ta-da! But he doesn't, okay? Because it's not, it's not what he writes. It's why he's writing. Okay? Now, why he's writing, there's a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of different reasons why he might be writing. It could be reclaiming the dignity of the woman. I've, I've heard that a lot, okay? Because, I mean, obviously, if she's been caught in the act of adultery, she's been caught in the act, okay? And here she is, completely exposed in a circle of condemners. And by turning the focus back to him, Jesus may allow her a little bit of time to reclaim her dignity, which would be awesome, okay? And that could be a reason. I'm not saying it's not. I don't know. It could be that. It could be that he's really making the leaders chew on their sinfulness. I mean, like, really making them think about this thing that they are doing. For all I know, he might actually be writing charges against them on the ground. There is something to be said about the fact that Jesus stoops and writes with his finger on the ground, and there's only two other times in the Bible where God writes with his finger. He does it on Sinai with Moses says that he inscribes the tablets of the commandments with his finger and you wonder if Jesus is just kind of going down the list and saying you know don't have any other gods before me don't make an idol out of anything even your morality you know don't use my name in vain you're coming into this situation and you're saying it's in the name of God are you kidding me in the name of you. You know, I mean, like, who, I don't know. He could be doing that. The other one, the other one where, uh, where God writes with his fingers in the book of Daniel. 
and, and that one's not very good either. That's that's where he starts writing, and basically it says your time is up. <laughs> You've been weighed on the scales of justice and been found wanting. Okay, I mean, so so any any time that God's writing with His finger, it's serious business. Okay, and it, and it may just be it may just be that he is trying to remind them of the gravity of the situation or that John is reminding them of exactly who this guy is that stooped down on the ground writing. It's not just some rabbi you're accusing. It's the Son of God. It may even be that Jesus is just pausing out to work out his initial frustration at the blatant twisting of the law. And he's just taking a moment before just absolutely giving it to him and and saying, all right, we're going to do this right. We're going to do this well. I don't know. One of the things I like best is the speculation of St. Ambrose from the 4th century in that he writes, Earth accuses Earth. And I love that simply because even if that's not what he wrote, the spirit of what he wrote, if it was that, then that makes sense because basically he's just reminding them of who they are again. It's like, look, you may have built yourself up in your mind here a little bit, but let's just let's just remember here, you are a dirt clod that has been animated by the breath and the grace of God, and you're going around accusing another dirt clod of them not being as good as you. Earth accuses earth. In the presence of God, earth accuses earth. He reminds them of who they are, and he reminds them of their inability to replace the authority of God with their own authority. And he simply says, if we're going to do this right, then the sinless one must be the one that initiates the judgment. I don't know how long it took before the first rock hit the dirt. I don't know. I just know Jesus goes back and just keeps writing. Okay. He says, I've said what I'm going to say about this. One by one, and I think it's interesting, from the oldest to the youngest. (laughs) Okay. You know, like, the older ones that get what he's saying, those with greater wisdom, they go first, and the young hotheads kind of trail in the wake, right? And it's just Jesus and the woman. And he says, where... Where are they? Did anyone decide to condemn you? Did anyone decide to initiate the judgment? She says, nope, no one. And Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to initiate the judgment either. We have to understand the importance of the words here, okay? Again, Jesus is not excusing the sin of the woman. He's placing it in perspective. And Jesus is not making light of the sin. He's going to go die for it a few chapters later. He takes it very seriously. But he embodies the gospel. And the gospel, the the heart of the good news is this. Her story is not yet written, and so Jesus will not end the story prematurely. My father is still writing your story, and so I refuse to write you off, is basically what he says. 
And this is in stark contrast to the judgment that's casually been passed without authority by the leaders, both on Jesus and on this woman. Jesus' authority asserts itself out of sympathy and a desire for redemption, not casual judgment either for guilt or innocence. Jesus continues to amaze me with his ability to be redemptive. And his best way of being redemptive is to defer judgment. To say, I know I have the authority to make the call. But because I know your story is not finished yet, I'm going to hold off. Because I'm merciful. Because I love you. Because I think that there's a great story of redemption that's yet to be written in you. And that's what he says to her. That's what he says to you and me. I, lo- I, I cannot overemphasize how amazing it is, though, of, of Jesus, not only his redemptive power, but his transformative power. How he steps into a circle of condemners and turns it into a place of refuge. Do you see that? Church, I want you to be encouraged by that. First and foremost, when we look at this encounter with Jesus, I want you to be encouraged that whatever that court of liars is in your life, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, okay? And there, and there are times where you will stand and you will feel like you are totally like stripped naked and exposed before people in real life with your sin, but I know a lot of it just takes place right here and right here, okay? But I, I, I know you because I have them too, okay? I have that court of liars in my head and I have that court of liars in my heart that says this is as good as it gets and you might as well just chuck it because, I mean, it's like, you, you know. You know the words that they use. You know. You know the phrases that they use that really just bring you low. And the encouragement of Christ for you today is that he steps into your circle of accusers and he makes it a place of refuge. He does that for you. He is not willing to pass judgment on you yet because he knows that your story is not finished yet. And he will do it again and again and again. With that encouragement that we are a people of deferred judgment comes a challenge to be a people of deferred judgment. How will we embody this redemptive attitude of Jesus? Jesus refuses to entertain easy answers regarding sin and judgment, and we have to, too. Jesus marries sympathy and authority, justice and mercy with how he looks at people. And we have to, too. Are we as a church willing to avoid the Pharisee trap of either avoiding or elevating ourselves above others in order to keep ourselves from being contaminated by sin? On the one hand. Or on the other hand... You know, treating the uh, 
treating the destructive power of sin lightly like it's nothing. Like there's there's something redemptive in the middle there. There's another way. And it's not easy and it's not simple, but it is living in the tension of deferred judgment. Of watching Jesus and his power transform and right lives. And that's the core of redemption for us and the core of redemption for the world is avoiding those easy answers and working on the difficult answers that allow Jesus to be the Lord of our redemption, allowing him to be the guide of how we deal with our judgments of others and ourselves. The thing that I love the most about Sally's story is that she leaves it unfinished. She's a... She's in her late 40s now. And she leaves it unfinished. She doesn't leave her memoir finished with, and I've got it all figured out now. In fact, she she blatantly says, I don't have it all figured out now. And if you ask me on a given day, I'm going to be all over the place. She says, but this I do know. It is a freeing thing to be at peace in the tension of spiritual transformation. She backs it up with her life. I love it because now she's actually heading a group called Centerpiece, which is a nonprofit organization in Abilene, which is like three hours west from Dallas. So this is like the buckle of the Bible Belt, okay? All right. She's leading this nonprofit organization called Centerpiece that is all about creating safe spaces to talk about same sex attraction in families and churches. And she is, and God is not only redeeming her and helping her grow into his image. She's living in this unresolved tension of having these inclinations, yet pursuing relationship with God on his terms. She's also allowing God to teach others how to do that through her work. And I love that. And that's why I think this is a relevant application for us, because ultimately, Sally's story And this story, and our story, is about how beautiful of a thing it is that we are invited to move in that still unfinished state of redemption. And not just to move in that, but to take others there with us. To invite others to go. Where even in the realization of our brokenness, God creates refuge. And so we're getting ready to come to the table of mercy. Where Jesus doesn't just embody Psalm 142, he also embodies Psalm 23, and he prepares a table for us in the presence of our accusers. And so I invite you to respond at that table today. Whether that's responding of the fact, you know what, I have, been, I have been allowing the liars to speak to me too much and I have not allowed you to be redemptive in my life, Lord, and so show me. Show me that redemption. Or if you say, you know what, I have been that court of liars with somebody else. And I need you to show me redemption in how I am acting toward the world around me, toward these people that are created in your image. Whoever they are, whatever it is they're struggling with time for us to come to the table of mercy prepared by the Lord who offers himself up as the sacrifice of redemption for you
Let's worship together.